We're not going to sit by while all the protections to wild lands are dismantled. You know, we're just not going to sit by and watch that. And I, I don't think other companies should either. Rose Marcario left behind a lucrative career in private equity to join the outdoor retail company Patagonia in 2008. Now, as CEO, she insists that saving the planet shouldn't be a mission for just her company, but for all. In an interview at a View from the Top event at Stanford Graduate School of Business, Marcario talks with students about how Patagonia is setting a new standard for environmental stewardship. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Rose, we're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It's great to be here at Stanford. It's just amazing. It's wonderful. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but Patagonia is practically the unofficial uniform of GSB students. I so, did see it around campus a little bit today. <laughs> in preparation for this interview, I undertook a rigorous study to analyze how many GSB-wearing Patagonia <laughs> students I would find in just one day on campus. Okay. And so without even trying, I found them in the library, in the dining hall, in class, in town square, and everywhere in between. That's good. So, I even found some GSB students clad head to toe in Patagonia, in Patagonia. <laughs> So while the GSB students clearly love Patagonia products, what we love even more is the company's leadership and values, and we're really excited to explore those oh, with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I'd love to start with your personal journey before you found your way to Patagonia. Mm -hmm. Early in your career, you reached the heights of professional success in PE and in tech. Yep. You were the CFO of a public company and later the EVP of a private equity firm. Yep. And in 2006, you walked away from it all. I did. Can you share with us why? Yeah. So I think like anyone, you know, when you start out your career, you're sort of striving. You know, you're striving to figure out who you are. You're striving to, to do work that... Um, is meaningful to you, even though you don't really know what that is yet, and you're just figuring it out. And, you know, I got to this place where um, my Italian immigrant family was like, wow, you've made it, you know, you're the CFO of a public company. I was in my 30s. And, um, and I, I was also going through a spiritual sort of journey. I was studying Buddhism at the time, and I got to a place where my work life felt completely separated from my personal life and my values. And it seemed to be that way with everyone that I was working around. It seemed that there was this bifurcation between your work life and your personal life and your personal values. And um, I just couldn't bear that anymore. And then I started working in private equity because I thought I'd have more freedom, it would be more exciting. And I was really disappointed by it. And I know some of you are going to go work in private equity, so I feel kind of bad saying this. <laughs> but, but for me personally, you know, I could see that, that you know, the buying and selling of companies made very few people rich. And in most cases, in a lot of cases, hurt the people that were the actual workers you know, and the people that had built the company. So yeah, I, I went on a sort of personal exploration. I went to India. I took some time off. I, I took care of my ailing mom at the time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I thought about different things that I could do with my life. And I thought, well, maybe I should work for an NGO. But then I thought, I know nothing about that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, maybe I should become a Buddhist nun. And, but then I thought, that's not so great. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought I'd use sort of the skills that I had, which mm -hmm. was making people money, mm -hmm. being a really good operator, being a good leader, a good manager, but do something with it that was more aligned with my values. Yeah. And I think for many people, this idea of giving up a path that is safe and conventionally prestigious feels very scary. Mm -hmm. You actually did it. 
you know, what did you learn from that? Was it as scary as people think? You know, it's funny. The people around me that were very trapped in their their structure were, were like calling me and saying, "You're doing the wrong thing. You're you're gone too long. You're leaving in the height of your career." I mean, <laughs> it was like, you know, there was a lot of advice, and it was all wrong. I mean, that, that's <laughs> that's basically what I can say about that. Um, I think that. You know, once you know that you want to make a change, I think you start to visualize that you're going to make that change. Mm. And it sounds like during that time you were reflecting a lot on what matters to you. What does the outdoors mean to you, and how did that shape your decision to focus on the environment? Well, nature is like, to me, it's, it's like a spiritual experience, and it's an experience of awe. And, you know, we, we don't get a lot of those experiences, I think, in our day-to-day -day life. And we want to protect it. But I think what was more interesting to me was that Yvonne had this model where he was basically saying, you can have a great business, you can make quality product, but you can also do the right thing by the environment, by your employees, by your community. And that, to me, was like the mo most holistic vision of business that I'd ever seen. And I wanted to see if it actually worked mm -hmm. and how it worked. And so that's sort of what brought me to, to uh, Patagonia. Yeah, absolutely. And so you joined Patagonia, which, as you mentioned, is a company with longstanding commitment to environmentalism. But under your leadership, the mission has become even bolder. Mm -hmm. Patagonia is now in the business of saving the home planet. Why did you think it was important to aim even higher? Yeah, well, that was really Yvonne saying, you know, we had so fully embodied the old mission statement that we, we felt like the urgency of the climate crisis and the extinction that we're facing is so urgent that we just, we felt like everybody's mission, every business's mission should be to save our home planet. I mean, we're facing this extinction, you know, crisis and this, um, and we can't turn our head, turn away from it, you know, and we need, we need the rest of business to sort of wake up and turn towards solutions and innovations and the things that will, you know, will, will help us survive. Mm -hmm. And Yvonne in some ways had this pioneering, almost anti-corporate vision of, of responsible business. Mm -hmm. And since you've joined, you've quadrupled revenue to reach over a billion dollars annually. Um, some people might think that driving both growth and environmental stewardship at the same time is impossible, but you've seemingly done it. How? I don't, I don't think that they're disconnected mm -hmm. in, in any way. I mean, I think at the foundation of the business, it's making a great product mm -hmm. and then standing behind that product. So I don't think that is in any way bifurcated from caring about you know, our planet and our environment. I mean, the business is, was founded by people who, you know, Yvonne himself made so many first ascents of, and climbs in his life. I mean, you know, there are people that love the outdoors and saw the changes that were happening to the outdoors over time. Because if you keep going back to these places, you can see that they're, you know, they're starting to um, degrade or they're being destroyed by, by um, the climate crisis. So I think Yvonne saw that and it's embedded in the company. Um, it's been, I think, more important in the last few years um, because we have so many climate deniers in our government. Um, it's been more important for us to take more of a stand. And I think our, our customers understand that, mm. you know, and they've been with the brand a long time and they appreciate that. Mm. And one of the unique things about Patagonia is that in many ways it's very countercultural. You donate millions in Black Friday sales to environmental organizations and you encourage customers to repair and resell their gear. Mm -hmm. And so as a leader at Patagonia, how do you decide where to place these bets on being different? You know, it, it comes out of what's happening in the moment, you know, like the, when we donated our Black Friday sales, it was right after the election. Mm -hmm. We were really bummed out about what was going to happen to, um, you know, the environmental protections that we had. We knew that um, the administration was trying to, you know, uh, get rid of these public lands designations that were made, and we were, we didn't feel very festive that that holiday. <laughs> and so we decided that we we wanted to 
to do something that was meaningful. And since Black Friday is such a uh, representation of consumerism in a negative way, we, we wanted it to be um, turned into something positive. And we also wanted to support grassroots activists that were mm -hmm. on the ground and needed the money to help fight some of these environmental battles. Mm. And some of these decisions, like the one you just talked about, or the decision, for example, to not sell Patagonia vests to companies that don't share Patagonia's <laughs> values, seem like they require some sort of prioritization between growth and, and values of the company. And I think a lot of us are looking to be leaders that mm -hmm. work in that space where we're, we're prioritizing both. So how do you actually make those decisions in practice? Well, I mean, we, we keep track, you know, we, we, we we definitely look at what could be the impact of, of certain actions. Mm. But most of the time, we're wrong for the better. Right. And, and that's, that's typically what happens. Yeah. Um, we, just, we just decided um, last year we gave away the Trump tax cut. And this year, we had another you know, 10 million to, we, we felt like to give away in addition. But we thought this year, OK, we're going to ask our customers to see if they'll participate with us. And our customers uh, contributed $10 million to grassroots activists in 17 days. Nice. Um, and we set this bar thinking, ah, $10 million, we might not get there. But our customers did it. And because they're as worried about the environment as, as we are. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think that's what's so fascinating about the model is it seems like some of these moves will hurt profits, but they end up having the opposite But these effect. are issues that are our issues. They're the issues of our day, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't turn away from them. Mm -hmm. If you're business leaders, you can't turn away from them and say, mm -hmm. oh, I'm just gonna go make a profit mm -hmm. and forget about the fact that the planet is burning, you know, or the mm -hmm. species are dying, mm -hmm. or that there's mm -hmm. such gross inequity between, you know, the, the rich and the poor, you know, that it's not going to affect me, right? I think, it, I think if you grow numb in that way, then we're probably all doomed, you know? Mm. Like, we need to turn toward it and actually do something. Yeah, absolutely. And while we're on this topic of sort of growth and values, at, at some point, if Patagonia continues to grow its retail business, mm -hmm. there could come a tension between that and sort of the environmental mission. Mm -hmm. And so how are you thinking about the growth of Patagonia's retail side, is that going to continue to be a focus, or are new business models going to emerge? Yeah, I mean, we will definitely there's, there's a lot going on in terms of just resources, right? So, you know, we're not going to have unlimited amounts of virgin material or, or virgin resources. We've, we've known that for a long time and have been working on all kinds of recycled and reclaimed mm -hmm. um, products because the reality is we're, we're not going to be able to keep consuming at the rate we're consuming and still have um, a planet. So we need, to, we need to change the business model. And that, to me, is like innovation. It's really exciting. You know, the people that we have working on that, they are stoked about it. They are, you know, blazing new trails and building new supply chains, you know. And, um, and so I think that's, that's just part of the process of understanding that, you know, business is changing and we need, you know, we need different solutions. Yeah, definitely. And part of the innovation Patagonia is doing is moving into this uh, space of food and agriculture. Mm -hmm. So could you talk to us a little bit about how that plays into this strategy that you were just talking yeah, about? Yeah, so we've always been looking at not just funding grassroots activism, but looking at solutions, you know, whether it's solutions to supply chain problems or pollution in the supply chain. Um, and in the 90s, um, our founder had sort of an epiphany about uh, conventional cotton. Mm -hmm. It uses, um, you know, 10x the pesticides of most crops, um, synthetic fertilizers, really, really terrible for the environment. And he said, if I have to make another shirt, you know, with conventional cotton, I'd rather close my business. And so he started working on an organic um, cotton supply chain. So we've always been pioneers in, in organic. And if you look at, you know, 99% of the agriculture in the US is chemical agriculture. I'm not gonna use the word conventional anymore because it's, you know, it's not conventional, it's chemical. And that's, you know, three or 400 million pounds of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers on, on the soil. 
So if you don't think that's affecting public health, biodiversity loss, you know, you're, you're kidding yourself. So we felt like food was the best entryway that, for people mm -hmm. to really understand that we can use the soil and we can use the earth as a regenerator. Mm -hmm. And regenerative organic agriculture, which is just really techniques, farming techniques, um, along with organic chemical-free agriculture, is, is the sort of solution, I think, that we need to turn toward um, to, to get out of this chemical, chemical agriculture model that we're in. We only, you know, so there's some estimates that say we only have 50 or 60 uh, harvests left. I know, it's like, it bums you out, right? But in some way, in some way, like, it should also excite the, you know, it, it should excite some ideas about, like, wanting to change it. And to me, those are the innovators and those are the businesses that will really make a difference. The regenerators, you know? We can have a regenerative economy. We're going to have to have one, mm -hmm. you know? Okay. And, um, and, the, and the businesses that are working on it now will, I think, be the most successful. Absolutely. And moving forward, do you see the agriculture arm being sort of almost as big, if not bigger than the retail? I think it could be, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, we also have set really um, strong carbon goals for ourselves um, to be carbon neutral by 2025 in our total supply chain. And it's really hard to do it, but we're working on doing it. And some of that is, has to be offset by sequestering more carbon in the ground through, through different farming techniques. And so we're, mm -hmm. we're looking at that as well. But... Um, yeah, it's, to me, it's really exciting. It's more about innovation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And Patagonia is pioneering all of these innovative approaches and, and doing them well. Your mission is to save the home planet, and Patagonia can't achieve that alone. And some would ask, you know, how replicable is what Patagonia is doing, given that you're so countercultural, long-term focused, and privately owned? And what's your strategy for influencing others in the broader industry? Well, I think the benefit corporation movement has been a really important part of, um, of showing that business should be responsible to multiple stakeholders. Mm -hmm. um, when we, we became the first California benefit corporation in 2011, and now there's, I think, 50,000 companies that are taking the B Impact assessment and over 3,000 that actually are certified. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, like, that's a nice container, that's a nice model. Um, you know, I can see, see the influence um, now with, you know, the business, Jamie Dimon and the business roundtable coming out and saying there should be um, more stakeholders than just the financial stakeholder. It seems to me obvious, you know, like that there should be more than one stakeholder <laughs> and that you could balance those things. And, and, you know, I think Patagonia does sort of exemplify balancing those things. Yeah. And one of the things I loved learning about Patagonia is your philosophy on sharing best practices. You share openly and you collaborate even with competitors in some cases. Why do you choose to lead that way? Well, it just makes, you know, because we're not a, a huge, huge company, it just makes other, it, it just, just helps innovations to scale. You know, if we do it and the North Face does it and, you know, it's, it, it, it helps, you know, and it's adopted more widely by the Gap or someone else, you know, it's, it, it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the philosophy behind sharing mm -hmm. and, um, and always constantly being innovative about what's next and what problem to solve next. Mm -hmm. Sustainable consumption sadly does remain financially prohibitive for a lot of people. And if the goal is to save the home planet, how are you thinking about sort of reaching the wider audiences necessary to attain that goal? Well, I, I would hope that there's enough consumer pressure on brands that, you know, people understand that if they buy a $2 t-shirt, it was probably made with slave labor and poisonous chemicals. And, you know, they think twice about, you know, buying that product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I think that as a brand, We've always had a belief that we make a great product, we'll repair it for you if you need it repaired and it's broken. Mm -hmm. So we're in a contract with our customer that says, we want you to keep that in use longer. 
because um, with all the life cycle analysis stuff we've done over the years, the most important thing is to keep your stuff in use longer. Mm -hmm. And that's the most important thing a, a, a consumer can do. And so we'll repair it, um, we'll replace it if we can't repair it, and we'll figure out a way to recycle the materials um, that, that you have. But you have to, you know, the, the customer has their part of the bargain too. Yeah, and um, yeah. yeah. And the work that you're doing on Warnware seems to be an interesting piece of this in, in the sense that it's attracting younger customers, customers who perhaps can't buy some of the new Patagonia gear, but they're able to buy some of the... Yeah, I mean, there's wear. definitely that. You know, we sell, we're selling our used gear. We're sort of, you know, making sure that it meets the requirements for, for being in the secondary market. And that does help attract a younger customer. But, you know, it's attracting younger customers to us now is really more our activism. Yeah. And um, the fact that we're standing up for the things that um, they care about. Yeah. Um, your employees love working at Patagonia, so I wanted to spend a few <laughs> minutes on corporate culture. Uh, it's not hard to see why they love it. From scaling on-site childcare to encouraging employees to hit the waves when the surf is up, you invest really heavily in your people. Why do you focus so much on this, and what's the return on investment? Um, well, let me just say, say something about childcare, because I feel like that's probably the biggest transformational thing for me personally, because I worked in tech before, and I don't have any children, so I didn't really relate to like the kinds of issues that um, my employees might have had. You know, there were like cappuccino machines and, you know, foosball tables and all kinds of cool tech stuff, but there was no place that a nursing mom could go and nurse comfortably. And when I came to Patagonia, I was totally blown away because there was on-site childcare, there's kids around our campus all the time, which is really great because you see the future every day and you have a real connection to your employees' children and the next generation. And that's, that motivates me every day. I mean, when I see my employees and their children, it makes me think about what am I doing for the long term? And, and you know, we, we subsidize our on-site childcare, but we manage it ourselves. And we have um, the lowest turnover in our female um, uh, executives, managers, employees. We have total gender parity, so 50-50 management, women and men. That comes from having on-site childcare, I believe, because women don't feel like they have to take a break <laughs> from their work. And you lose a lot of women after they have kids because it's just, it becomes un, kind of untenable in, in lots of ways and it's not supported in a lot of working environments. So that's why I think we have a really strong, great gender balanced company in that way. I think it makes us make better decisions. Um, and, um, and the ROI on it, um, I, I've done a thing, you can look at it on LinkedIn on the ROI, there is an ROI on it and yeah, I mean, I look at that big campus Apple built, and I'm like, why is there not childcare there? Absolutely. I, that was going to be one of my questions, is why aren't more companies doing this? And is it really as expensive as people think when no, they're making No, I, I don't think, I really, I, I, the economic model is on, is on there, but it's really not, it's really not that expensive. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's um, the benefits far outweigh the costs. And, um, you know, we subsidize a portion, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not in any way prohibitive or... To, to our business, and they've been doing it, you know, Patagonia's been doing it since they were a small company. Yeah. So it's just built into the business model. Yeah. No, yeah. An incredible inspiration, and I hope that one that we'll all take with us as, as future leaders and implement. Um, so if we zoom out from Patagonia's business and culture and talk a bit more about your views on corporate leadership, particularly in the 21st century, with all of the problems that we're facing, under your leadership, Patagonia has become much more political uh, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier you even sued the Trump administration for its plans to roll back public lands. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you ramp up your political activism? And in the lead up to 2020, is this something that all business leaders should be thinking about? Well, I think we've seen a lot. I mean, when, when uh, the administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, we're the only major country not in the Paris Climate Accord. It's a, it's a disgrace. And 
you know, you saw business leaders step up and you know sign, sign a, a document saying we're still in, we're in the accord, we're going to keep working towards those goals. And I think that was the first time I was like, wow, business is waking up, and they're starting to really you know participate and take a stand. And you know, our reaction to what this administration has done is, I think, proportional, mm-hmm. given that given that the company has always been about protecting wild places. Mm-hmm and protecting the environment. You know, when Trump signs away three million acres of public land with a stroke of a pen, we're not gonna sit silent about that. And it was, you know, it was definitely a difficult choice um, to make to sue the administration, but it was the best choice that we had in that time. And um, yeah, I mean, we do it again in a second. And we've sued him over the, the Endangered Species Act, and we've, you know, <laughs> we're we're an amicus briefs on a number of other issues, and you know, the Clean Water Act, and you know, we're we're not going to sit by while all the protections to to wild lands are dismantled. You know, we're just not going to sit by and watch that. And I I don't think other companies should either, because a lot of their they'd probably be interested to know that a lot of their employees find a lot of enjoyment in the outdoors mm-hmm. and spending time with their families there. And if it's gone because of you know greedy people, um, then we don't get it back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels proportional to me. I mean, people are, say to me all the time, oh, you're taking a biggest stand. But I, I, it feels very proportional to, the, to what the company has been devoted to over the last 46 years and what we'll keep being devoted to. And you're out there taking a stand often before anyone else is, and you mentioned that's not always easy. What helps you to actually act on those convictions for those of us that are hoping to do that one day as well? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, Chris Tompkins, who's on our board, when I took the job as CEO, said to me, you don't get points for holding back. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great advice. Mm-hmm. And so I've always sort of had that in my, my brain. You know, we shouldn't hold back. We should, we should do what we think is right, no matter what the climate is and what the situation is. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's that. And I also think, you know, I work with just amazing people, and we all have the same values of protecting wilderness for future generations and we all care about wild places you know being around and and if they're you know if they're not we're not going to have a a world to live in. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side you have spoken out against tech leaders for their sort of refusal to take responsibility for their impact on society. Where do you see the sector falling short and how can we as aspiring tech leaders be better in the future? Well, it's, okay, think of how much money, like, the few, like, richest tech guys are. I'm not going to name them by name, because you all know them. <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing? Like, going to Mars? <laughs> I mean, how, how weird is that? I, I mean, our, our planet is like, we are in dire trouble here. You know, there's, there's unbelievable income inequity. There's unbelievable, um, you know, there's a rise of populism and fascism in the, in the world. It's very scary right now. There's, there's, you know, there's a climate crisis that is um, affecting everyone's life and causing billions and billions of dollars in damage. And a few, you know, well, very wealthy people could do something really powerful about it. And I don't see them doing anything. I really don't. Self-driving cars, going to Mars. I don't get it. You know, I don't get it. And I think it's, I think it's the reason why a lot of wealth shouldn't be concentrated into a few people. Because that's what happens. And yeah, it's not going to make me very popular, <laughs> tech crowd here, but, you know, it's just my point of view about it. Yeah, no, this is why we like bringing diverse speakers on this (laughs) slate, so we get different points of view. Um, You you also have these uh, great 
thoughts on the financial system and the ways in which it's sort of structurally destroying our planet, particularly this emphasis on quarterly earnings. Yeah. And so a lot of us are gonna be going back out into the business and the finance world. What one call to action would you have for us on, on that piece? Well, I do think that like this quarterly earnings thing is insane. I, I was a public company CFO and I saw people just like oh, sweating out one cent of earning per share. And it's like, think about your life. Like nothing important happens in a quarter. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's such a weird system, you know, like developed by probably just a bunch of people you wouldn't want to sit and have dinner with, honestly. <laughs> and, and I feel like it's really destroying the planet, you know, because it's a short-term thinking. I don't want to think about like what happened in a quarter. I want to look into the eyes of my employee's child and, and say, what's going to happen in her lifetime? I mean, you know, and, and to me, it's like the whole idea of this short-term profit that makes, a, you know, a few shareholders very rich, it's, it's not a good model. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that capitalism is bad. I love capitalism. I love the competition. I love the innovation. I love the working together and collaboration and the best ideas win. I love that, and that's like the best part of capitalism, and great products, and great services, and disruption, and all of that. So capitalism needs to evolve, that's all. Mm -hmm. It's like it's not like necessarily a bad system, it just needs to evolve, and it needs to consider more things than just a financial shareholder or a quarterly earnings report. Yeah, absolutely. And Larry Fink of BlackRock just put climate at the center of his annual letter. You know, we've mm -hmm. seen a lot of talk about these things in the past. Do you feel like we're finally reaching a tipping point where action is coming? I don't know. You know, I see a lot of talk and I don't see a lot of action yet mm -hmm. from that group. And we don't have time to not have action. You know, when I say there's 50 or 60 har harvests left, there's a lot of scientists that believe that. When there's, you know, when we really look at the climate crisis and how quickly it's come upon us, and pretty much everyone in this room has been touched in some way by a fire or flood or, you know, has some relative that's been affected. And it's only getting worse. So I don't see the action yet. You know, I really, I don't see the investment yet. Um, I still see using the same measures or metrics, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not seeing it all, but. I thought we'd turn now to some of the broader leadership lessons from your career and, and, and trajectory. And many of us in this room at Stanford hope to found companies. We're known mm -hmm. for attracting aspiring entrepreneurs. But there's this other equally powerful path of working alongside founders and helping to scale their vision yeah. and impact, which is very much what you've done alongside Yvonne Chouinard. What's the most important thing that you've learned from working with him? Oh, man, there's so many things. Well, he is completely fearless. Whenever he makes a decision, he doesn't care what anyone says or thinks, or he's just completely fearless. He keeps going, you know. And you might get some noise over here, complaints here or there, but you know, it just he doesn't let it bother him. He just he keeps he keeps moving forward, and um, and he's he's um, very self-examining. Um, it's really part of the company culture to live an examined life, mm -hmm. and all of us, I feel like, do that and. We're all curious people, and um, yeah, and I think that and quality. He's he always is really really focused on quality, and I think he's right to always bring it back to that because at the end of the day, we're selling a product, and we want that product to be of the highest possible quality, mm -hmm. and we want the relationship with the customer. I'm lucky enough to have some of our Palo Alto store employees here today. And it's like they do the really hard work of like expressing the brand through themselves as people. Mm -hmm. And that has always been really important, mm -hmm. you know, aspect of the brand. Mm -hmm. This idea of living a self-examined life, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about this. You have a strong set of inner values that guide you and anchored in sort of your Buddhist and meditation practice that you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier. 
what role does this play in your leadership and what advice would you share with us for cultivating that inner sense of self? Well, I think it's really good always to be self-examining um, and to be curious about differences. And, you know, we become so polarized um, as a country in, in so many ways, and yet there isn't a whole lot of curiosity about why people are different or why they might have different views. And, and I think my practice helps me to be more conscious of the ways in which I, you know, I fall short myself of, you know, being self-reflecting. And, um, and meditation is, is a nice tool. It really does help you deal when you're in a high-stress job. It's good to have, you know, it's good to have some tools that, that work. For some people, it's like, you know, certain kinds of exercising or whatever. But for me, it's, it's a real tool to manage my just to manage my, my life and to, to, to check in on my decisions and whether I feel good and right about the decisions that I'm making for the company and for myself. Many of us hope to make pivots throughout our career and your pivot from private equity to Patagonia is an incredible example. How do you shift your mindset to adapt to the new industry that you're in without losing the unique insights that you bring from the previous one? Well, I think your all of your life experience, you know, it, it comes to bear in anything that you do. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a common theme, you know, when you do these talks. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest the biggest thing is that it's all it all gets incorporated. If you're a person who lives uh, you know, a holistic life, and your life is kind of melded together, your values and your work and, and your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best way to live, you know? Mm -hmm. And you have this quote that says, work is where the self meets the world, mm -hmm. which I loved. And many of us are graduating in a few months. So what is the most important thing we can do to actually find that alignment between yeah. our work and our values? Well, I think, I think work is the place where the self meets the world because it's where you kind of are confronted with all of these sort of tensions that you don't have in your family life, you know, and you have to navigate through them in difficult people or difficult business conditions or whatever it may be. And, um, and you learn a lot about yourself if you're a curious person. And, you know, like I've learned, I learned a lot from like the bad bosses that I've had. Mm -hmm. I, I learned more probably from the bad bosses than I have from the good bosses. Um, you know, there, there are things like that that in retrospect, when you look back on it, you realize, oh yeah, I like, mm -hmm. didn't ever want to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> or I did, you know, I want to incorporate this or that. Or yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the way I see it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we wanted to leave time today for, for questions from the audience. So I'm cool. going to turn it over now to some audience members who have questions for you. Great. Um, hi, I'm Maya Granin. I'm an MBA too, and then also doing the Masters of Science in Environmental Studies. Awesome. Um, so if we want to save our home planet, we need to get a heck of a lot of people involved. Um, but the environmental movement is often associated with a certain demographic, mm -hmm. often wealthier, often white, and frequently women. Um, so what is Patagonia doing, and what can we do as future business leaders to push that movement to greater representation and kind of include more people in the narrative? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's a really good good question. So what we, we started doing this a few years ago um, with, um, with our, our grassroots giving because that seemed like the fastest way that we could activate it. Um, and we started just looking for groups that were outside of our normal sort of um, outdoor cohort, you know, and, and a lot of these relationships formed over time with just because Yvonne met people along the way and they were protecting certain places. And so that's sort of how the movement grew. And, um, and so we took it more into um, protecting areas that maybe aren't the grand outdoor places, but it's a cool group of, you know, Latina moms in LA that are doing, you know, that are doing air quality testing. <laughs> like, we wouldn't have even known about that group before, you know? And so we started just bringing in these, um, we started having kind of conferences with all these different NGOs and, and just, just like making more connections because we're all really 
connected in the mm -hmm. same movement. And it's just about like making the connections stronger and deeper. And I think that's the way that we're looking at it. And we're also, you know, exchanging, sharing, learning a lot from, from that process as well, so. Hi, Rose, thank you for being here. My yeah. name's Ellery, and I'm also a second year. I'm organizing the climate conference with Maya, so awesome. we're excited about this topic. Um, given Patagonia's 2025 commitment to being carbon neutral and the complicated history of carbon offsets, how does Patagonia think about choosing offsets that truly deliver what they yeah. promise? And then secondarily, how can we collectively hold Patagonia and other companies like Microsoft and JetBlue to the commitments they make? Yeah, this is a really good question because like when I first looked at, off I, di I didn't really know much about offsets, but when we first started looking at offsets as a part of our carbon plan, someone told me I could spend $100,000 and it could offset all of our you know, all of our carbon in the US. And I was like, that makes absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> like, just at a practical level, that makes zero sense. I don't know where that $100,000 is going, but it doesn't seem to be going for what it's, you know, really going for. So we're really looking for, like, absolute reductions, you know, by implementing, like, implementing solar grids or working on energy deals or working on converting factories that are using coal to using renewable energy, and that's the way we're we're looking at it. Offsets, there are some offsets that are that are good. They're 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 conservation, mostly conservation related, the stuff that we're looking at, and I find that to be a little bit, um, you know, to make more sense um, because conserved land is a carbon sink, and it really, you know, if it's not conserved, it's likely to be disrupted and destroyed. But the market itself is, you know, you, I think you have to be very careful about um, how people get to that goal and are they getting to it in a real way. So mm -hmm. just, just keep asking those deep questions because, you know, that's how you hold people accountable, really, you know. Hi, Rose. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm Caroline Lane, a first-year MBA student. Um, I have a question about kind of the global ambition of Patagonia, because we all know Patagonia is in the business of saving home planet, mm -hmm. and uh, it's such a global crisis and uh, imperative, especially for the developing countries, where you've, you're, we're going to see you know, another billion uh, middle class entering the world stage for 2025. So what is the vision and ambition from Patagonia on the global stage? Do you see more aggressive expansion of your global footprint, and how do you balance that with your anti-growth strategy? Yeah, so it's not really about growing our footprint so much as like activating our community um, in uh, outside of the U.S. region. And we've been in, you know, we've been in Japan for almost 30 years. We've had a business in Europe for almost 30 years, and in South America. Um, in Australia, and, um, and in all those places, what we're trying to do is, um, first of all, give to grassroots organizations that are really doing things on the ground, and that creates kind of a community for us um, to work with. And um, it's one of the biggest changes that I feel like in my tenure as CEO I feel really proud of is, is making that mission much more global. And, um, and we use a tool that we introduced a few years ago called Patagonia Action Works, which we're now mm -hmm. la launching around the globe. And it really is to connect our customers with our causes, because a lot of our customers just want to know, what can I do? Like, you know, can I donate time? Should I donate money? What are the right NGOs? And so we're connecting them together. And um, it's been really powerful. And you know, we, we also work on policy issues with, um, with the government, you know, wherever we are, environmental policy issues. Um, and we stand up as a voice for that. And, and a lot of our industry is also concerned about these issues. So we work as a convener to, to kind of make change, so. We have time for more questions from the audience, so if anyone else would like to ask Rose a question, please throw up your hand and we will get a mic to you. So, Hi Rose, I'm Isabel Fisher, second year MBA student here. Um, I came to do my MBA because I really do believe the private sector has a big role to play in addressing challenges that face the world. However, I'm also very aware that there are certain areas and certain challenges where the private sector's role is limited. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear you speak a little bit to where you see that distinction lying and, and where you see a real role for government nonprofits that the private sector can't yeah. address. 
Well, there's a lot of hybrids going on, right? Like we, we, know, we notice this whenever we have to build a supply chain that hasn't been built before. It's like you need, sometimes you need an NGO, sometimes you need mm -hmm. you know, a policy person in government or local government, and then sometimes you might need venture fund money. You know, so there's a lot of like interesting hybrids going on, um, and I think that's really the only way we're going to solve these big intractable, you know, problems is by collaborating in that way. And you know, it it means a lot, even if you're a small business. You know, it means a lot if you let your voice be known to your, you know, to your legislatures mm -hmm. and to the, you know, become active in your in in policy essentially. Um, so. Hi, thank you for being here. I'm Doralice, first year MBA. Uh, you mentioned a lot of success cases where Patagonia is able to collaborate with other NGOs, with the consumers, even with governments to join the cause. What are the biggest struggles that Patagonia is facing when you don't succeed in doing so? Well, I think, I think the biggest struggles are just the, the trying to, um, trying to, to help people understand the scope of the problem because a lot of environmental problems, you know, you can say, well, we're gonna deregulate, you know, Roundup, but most people don't think about what are the impacts of that, you know? It's like, well, that might help a farmer if you deregulate Roundup, <laughs> but what does it do to the stream? And then what does it do to the water supply? And then what does it do to biodiversity and to the animals that are gonna drink that water? You know, it's just like people have a hard time in some ways thinking about the causation of, of certain policies especially. I think that's probably um, the, the most complicated challenge is, is, is like understanding that there might be a business pur purpose, but there is also like a better way to do things. And, you know, trying to always look at that. I mean, we, we pollute, we're, you know, we're a company, we pollute, but we, we also understand that that's a problem. <laughs> so we charge ourselves a 1% a, a tax on our own sales and we give to environmental groups that, you know, will we'll fight for these causes. So, you know, I think you constantly have to be, um, business has to keep in mind that they have a stakeholder, which is the planet. And that is a really hard concept for people to get. I don't know why, because we're losing biodiversity at an enormous rate right now. Um, you know, we've, we're in the middle of a climate crisis. I, I don't know why that's such a hard concept, but it, it, it kind of is. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. Maybe that's something you guys will solve. <laughs> okay. okay, we're taking one last question. Hi, thank you so much. Um, it is awesome to have an openly queer business leader on stage today. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about some mentors who have helped you get to where you are, particularly as somebody who is out in a space where there are not a lot of people who are out. Um, well, I, you know, I wasn't out early in my career because it was like not, you know, it was so not cool to do that. Um, <laughs> And then when I came to Silicon Valley and I was became C CFO of General Magic, I was like, I cannot go into this very public role, you know, because when you're CFO, you're on all the road shows and things like that, and not be myself. Like, I just decided I was drawing a line. Like, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> and, um, and when I told our head, the head of HR, when they were making the offer to me, when I told the head of HR, she, she just looked at me and said, oh my God, I thought you were gonna say you had cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and she goes, oh, what you mean this is, you know, it was Silicon Valley, you know, it was like a very welcoming community, you know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think I, I definitely, I, I mean, I had a boss early in my career that asked me not to act so gay you know, in meetings, you know? I mean, I've, ha I've had weird stuff like that happen in my career. <laughs> and, you know, but it's just, it's like you, you just sort of evolve and you, you go through it, you know? Right now, it's just, it's just such a part of me, I don't even think about it until you mentioned it, mm. actually. <laughs> <laughs> Great. 
So we usually end our talks on a light-hearted lightning round. And for this one, I thought we could get the audience involved. So we're going to play a quick game of Patagonia workforce policy trivia. So I'm going to share a series of policies, all of which are true or false. And I'd like the audience to just yell out whether you think they're true or false. And then, Rose, if you could reveal the right answer. OK. That would I'll, be great. I hope I know it. I hope you, yeah. It's <laughs> a critical part of the game. Um, okay, so number one, employees at Patagonia get every other Friday off. True or false? Ooh, mixed. I thought this was the easy one. True. True. True at our corporate office, not true in all of our stores. It's true. We have other ways of doing that. Patagonia sponsors two months of paid leave for employees to volunteer with an environmental organization. True. 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 <laughs> Patagonia has a buyback program under which it purchases all North Face clothing from new hires. False. False. But, but maybe a future policy, we don't know. Um, Patagonia pays for its nursing mothers to bring their baby and a nanny on business trips. True. Amazing. Patagonia subsidizes the installation of solar panels in all employees' homes. Uh, <laughs> false. False. <laughs> um, okay, two more. Patagonia rotates its annual retreats through the U.S. national parks. Oh, mixed one. False. False. But <laughs> might not be a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> And Patagonia post bail for employees that are arrested for peacefully protesting the environment. True. 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 Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I think. Thank you, Joe. At this point, we can all understand why it's so difficult to get a job at Patagonia. <laughs> Rose, thank you so much for thank coming. You. It's been this a awesome. real thank honor. Thank you, guys. And thank Great you. For being listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business based on the Dean's Speaker Series. This interview was conducted by Tara Hill from the MBA class of 2020. Our music was composed by Lily Sloan. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB. You can find more episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts.